Welcome to episode 85 of Frank Reactions, the show where we help you profit from the digital era through better customer experiences online and off. My name is Tema Frank. You'd think by now I would have learned that when I attend conferences, my plans about getting episodes out while I'm there just never, ever happen. Because when I'm at a conference, I'm kind of busy talking to people. And uh, by the time I finally get back to my hotel room, it's really hard to persuade myself to stay up later and record and edit podcasts. So... What you get today is a rather belated episode. It should have gone out last week, or you can think of it as an early episode for next week. I recorded it mostly at the Digital Customer Experience Strategies Summit in Chicago, and I've interspersed my sort of summary of what happened and what were some of the most interesting things that people talked about at the conference. I've interspersed that with some interviews that I did with people who attended the conference. Now, don't panic because the little clip qualities of interviews I did with people at the conference, there's a lot of background noise. So they aren't, you know, the greatest quality sound, but I still think they give you a little bit of an interesting perspective on what others thought. And they're pretty short clips. So if you have trouble understanding one, don't panic because it'll get back to me talking soon. And although I wasn't in my regular studio setup, it was still pretty decent sound quality in the hotel. The other thing you should know about those audio clips from others is that because so many of them were from really big companies, they did not want to speak using their names because if they'd done that, it would have taken weeks to get permission and go through all the bureaucracy that's required when you're with a big company and want to speak about what your company is doing. That in itself, though, I think is perhaps one of the first big learnings from the conference, which is it is absolutely astounding how many really big companies, names you would recognize, are just now starting to put together customer experience strategies and starting to realize that improving customer experience is crucial going forward. So if you're at the beginning of your journey, don't feel badly because there are some pretty big boys and girls who are in the exact same place. I hope you enjoy the episode and I will chat with you again in roughly a week. Vicki Jones from AT&T talked about the challenges of merging three already very large organizations, AT&T Home Solutions, which provided broadband and TV services, DirecTV, and AT&T Mobile. There were a lot of, and still are, I suppose, a lot of huge challenges, particularly when it came to merging the technology, the culture, and the rules. And according to her, the biggest of all those challenges was, in fact, the culture. Luckily for her, the chairman and CEO of AT&T was really behind their desire to put together a customer experience roadmap, which made it actually possible to start really moving forward on something so major. She commented that the, the real issue of customer experience is to solve, obviously, a customer problem and to keep complexity simple for the users. That is very reminiscent of a lot of what we learned in user experience. It's all about how can we make this simpler, smoother, easier, frictionless for the customer and about doing a lot of customer research so you know what customers really care about and what's important to them. 
AT&T has 166,000 staff members who interact with customers. Imagine what a huge challenge that is trying to bring all of those people onto a common platform. Because if you really want to provide a seamless customer experience of the sort that people expect in the omni-channel era, where they can go from a phone to a computer to a store, whatever, they expect you to have their information and know that your history with them, regardless of where they interact with you. And they recognize, AT&T recognized that this is a hugely important thing to customers, but trying to get 166,000 people onto a common platform was not an easy thing. So they invested a lot in trying to streamline their systems. Another big theme that came out from several of the speakers was the increasing use of text and messaging as ways to interact with customer service. So one of the things that AT&T did is they added text capabilities so that customers could get so that customers could get into their own contact record and make changes to their account. See the thing is, the more of these types of simple transactional things you make easy for them, the more likely they are to do it themselves online and save you costly phone calls. They also had to rethink all of their offers. I mean, as you know, if you've lived in North America, certainly, and I suspect it's the same in Europe, we've evolved to these telecom systems where there are huge numbers of packages and bundles that you can put together that combine certain television channels and speeds of internet and all these different things. And it had got to the point where AT&T had hundreds of different bundles. So another issue that they had to deal with was simplifying the offers and the pricing, which according to Vicki Jones is a lot harder than you think it would be to do. They had a ton of digital data that they could analyze and use to make predictions about customer experience. They had some 1,100 customer data attributes that they could pull. So another challenge is simply figuring out what in all that is relevant. Some people in smaller organizations wish they had more data to work with, but a lot of the organizations at this conference feel that they're kind of drowning in data and it's really hard to grapple with it and figure out how to actually get the insights out of it. There was talk at the conference as well about personalization, which of course is kind of one of the holy grails, I guess, of big data and digital technology is the fact that we have the capability to make very personal and personalized offers to our customers. But again, it takes a lot of customer research and understanding to get those right. And it takes a lot of analysis of the data to figure out what are the right offers, when to offer them, and even complexity like at AT AT&T again, they needed to look within accounts because different family members have different viewing habits. So in the same way that Netflix asks you, which of the people in your household is watching and then presents different offers or different suggestions to you based on who's watching, AT&T was trying to do something similar. But the great thing about all that data and personalization is if you get it right, you can really potentially optimize your profits because you don't need to offer the same discounts to everybody. You can make better offers that are specific to individuals based on what is relevant to them. And this could potentially end up saving you money. One of the themes that always comes out at customer experience gatherings is how do you get 
senior level support and particularly CEO support, because there's no question it's a lot easier to do this stuff if you have CEO level support. Vicki Jones' comment was, to get CEO support, don't talk about technology. Talk about the customer journey. Let them feel and experience customer pain. One of the best things that I've gotten from this conference is the conversation about empathy in relation to a lot of the other conversations that have been going on. So most people don't bother putting themselves in the, like they build personas Mm -hmm. and they imagine what that might be, but they don't actually put themselves in the shoes of their consumers or any potential future consumers. And it's, it's a very interesting aspect of the conversation that I usually don't expect to hear in a customer experience conversation I think was sorely needed. I advocate in people shock that you literally should get your senior executives into your stores or onto your call center front lines talking to customers and really experiencing what customers go through because especially the bigger your organization, the more removed from it your senior executives get and they need to be brought back down to what are our customers really experiencing. The second event of that day was the panel that I was on along with Martin Gerth, who is the Senior Manager of Customer Experience at Travelocity, and I did record a full interview with him, which you'll be hearing later, not today, but another day, and Danny Setuan, who is the Head User Experience Designer for Mobile at The Economist, which is one of the very few publications that I'm actually willing to pay for still, because they have really high-quality journalism, and I've been intrigued to find out more about How are they balancing free offerings with paid offerings? So anyway, Danny was talking about how they use some of the data. But one of the first things that we got at, and I guess this was following up from the AT&T talk, was this question of getting CEO support and buy-in. And I guess similar to what Vicki Jones was saying, I made the comment that to really sell change, you need to lead with the story and then use the statistics to support the story that you're telling. So you want to get emotional involvement from the senior executives first, and then give them the data to back up what they've now been convinced of. We talked about one of, I guess, my pet peeves, which is that we've really trained customers to bash us on social. Because what happens is, if you try and call a call center to get help, you're generally stuck in a pretty long wait and a queue, and it's not very pleasant. And often, by the time you get a person, they don't really have the authority to solve your problem anyway. Whereas, if you go on social media, most organizations are so afraid of something blowing up that they'll deal with it pretty quickly. And Travelocity, in fact, which has done a superb job lately of really changing their approach so that they can give incredible, fast responses on social media. Martin Gerth commented to me that part of the way they have dealt with that is they have the equivalent of level three customer service people, so higher level authority on the social media platform. So, you know, on the one hand, yes, they're giving great service, and it has, in their case, they've discovered that most social media issues can actually be handled very quickly and simply. So it is still cheaper for the organization to deal with them that way than on a phone call. But I would still argue that if you train your phone reps better and give them authority as you give the social media reps, that you might get a little less public bashing. 
Next up was Ryan Bateman from Dynatrace, who talked about the relationship between the business bros, as he called them, and the IT bros. And as those of us who've worked in this field for any length of time know, these bros tend to speak a very different language. So one of the big challenges that I was still hearing throughout this conference, and again, it really did remind me of the early days of e-commerce, was how do you get the business folks and the IT folks on the same page? As Ryan pointed out, half the time they can't even agree on what a user visit is. The definition, is it based on sessions? Is it based on IP addresses? What length of time for you know a second page? There are all kinds of complexities that go into something as simple as a page visit or a website visit. They also tend to have very different outlooks on how they want things to proceed. I mean, developers, as Ryan Bateman put it, want to, quote, get their shit out into the wild as soon as they can. They want to get stuff built and out there and see what happens. Whereas marketing is likely to want to be much more strategic and think things through at a different level and and be much more careful about the wording and positioning before they go to market with something. So really, the way to bring the business bros and the IT bros, or as he put it, broettes, together, you really need to look at the customer journey. Because fundamentally, that is what unifies the two. They all influence what happens in that customer journey. And to create a good one, they need to collaborate. My number one takeaway is all about the customer journey mapping and how it's not just one business unit that's supposed to own it. It's more than it's more of a collective group and you want to get subject matter experts from each business unit in order to articulate what their process is, why it's that way, and then figure out the best way to streamline it. Peter Hayde of Touchpoint Dashboard made the important point that customer journey mapping has to include customer emotions, not just activities. Otherwise, as he put it, they're just process maps. Customer emotions are really critical in creating good customer experiences. You've got to manage the emotions. Kate Compeline of Best Buy said that when you're doing customer journey mapping, it's important that you have the details but simplify the maps before presenting them to senior executives. It's just like anything else. There's a reason why executive summaries are short. It's because senior executives are busy people. They want the key points. So simplify those journey maps, but back them up with little customer voice things and details that bring them to life and explain and really make the case about why different elements of the journey may need change. Customer journey maps can be used in many different ways. They can be used to help come up with a vision of what you want the future state to look like. They can be used to help justify funding for change and, of course, used with strategy to identify and solve problems. Customer journey mapping is a really, really crucial skill to have if you want to improve customer journeys. I will begin offering customer journey mapping courses, so if you think you'd be interested in that, send me an email afterwards, tema at frankreactions.com, so that's T-E-M-A at frankreactions.com, and let me know if you would be interested in taking a class on customer journey mapping and how to do it, and whether you would want to do such a class online or in person. Michelle Morris, the customer experience executive at Crow Horwath LLP, brought employees into the equation, pointing out that great customer experience is impossible to deliver if your employees hate their work or hate you. So you need to fix that first, or focusing on customer experience is kind of pointless. 
another challenge as you get employees more involved in direct customer interaction is you need to be sure that you don't have different people in your organization sending the same content to the same customer or even sending different content. You don't want to bombard the customer. So there needs to be some kind of centralized management or control of, of the customer interactions and what goes before the customer to make sure you're not overdoing it and ending up irritating them. Crowhorweth in the U.S. is actually adapting its website to visitors based on what they know about where that visitor is coming from. So if, for instance, the visitor is logging in from a financial institution, they will prominently feature articles to do with banking or finance. Interesting sort of first step towards personalization. Kavitha Krishnan from CUNA Mutual Group pointed out the importance of having content inventory tracking. This is something that personally I'm surprised there still don't seem to be a lot of really good systems for. It's mostly done by spreadsheet and it's still really tedious. But the thing is to come up with the volume of content that you need to put into that fire hose these days, you really want to be able to repurpose content. And to do that, you need to keep track of what you've got and where you've put it. She also had the devious idea of using content from competitors' website if you're having trouble motivating your stakeholders that this convincing your stakeholders that this is something really urgent developing this kind of content. I like it. Eric Bushiger of and I hope I didn't butchiger his name pronunciation, who's with Allstate Canada talked about the importance of hiring staff who have a cultural fit with what you're hiring for and how, since his organization is focused to doing more of that, they've actually had lower turnover. Allstate Canada is trying to get its various agents all across the country to the point where they are comfortable using social media to help spread the messages that are relevant to their audiences and to customize them and personalize them for local audiences across the country. So they are training them using a combination of bi-weekly phone calls and personal coaching backed up with some general guidelines to keep agents using social media appropriately. Next challenge is trying to get some of the senior executives more comfortable with using social media. There was also a lot of talk about developing user personas and making sure that they are, of course, as real as possible, bearing in mind that the persona itself has to focus on the qualitative. You want somebody who comes across like a real person to help your designers and stakeholders identify with that customer and with that customer type. So you may use some quantitative information in developing what your core personas should be, but the persona documents themselves need to be really richly developed and qualitative. Zion's Bank reported that their customer experience improvement efforts lowered abandonment rates by 20% in most markets, that it Increase the number of uh, applications for accounts coming in from new customers to 60%. And they experienced a 285% increase in some affiliate markets for new account openings. So pretty spectacular results from customer experience improvement at Zions Bank. 
Another point I really liked from Kavitha Krishnan was, you know, we've talked for the last few years about taking a mobile first approach. And certainly there was lots of data presented at the conference about how mobile is really overtaking the desktop as the primary place people do visit the web. But she made the point that you really need to think about how each type of screen is likely to be used and then customize the look for that type of screen. So if you have an app that's going to be used on a watch versus a phone versus a tablet versus a desktop, there are different types of things that users will want to do at those different places. So for instance, for retail, phones people use very heavily to look up where the stores are and what their hours are. So that's probably information you want right on the first screen for the phone version. Whereas on a desktop or tablet device, and I do find it odd that we always lump tablets with mobile because I think in many ways they're more similar to laptop or desktop experiences. So on those larger devices, people are more likely to be actually shopping and purchasing products. People now do browse a lot of products even on their phones, but they still primarily buy on larger screens where it's easier to type and where perhaps there is better information security if you're entering credit card information. Kavitha, who speaks with a lovely Indian accent, did also make the comment that if you're designing voice-activated tools like Siri... Remember, there are a lot of accents out there. So one of many customer experience factors you really need to think about. In fact, there was a whole presentation about accessibility and accessible design, making the point that making what you develop accessible to people with disabilities, in fact, invariably makes it more usable for everybody. So the biggest thing to me was um, just the awareness around the um, around the accessibility for people with disabilities, right? Because my business partners are also here, and that was something that was caught us completely off guard. And as a as a utility, my first question as a new employee was, of course we're doing that because we're regulated, and of course we have to do these types of things. And they said, we're absolutely not. It's something we should be doing, but it, wow. it, up until today, no one really thought about it. So I found that very surprising, and I'm just glad that you know this made awareness and that we can actually make these improvements now going forward. So think a lot about accessibility when you're doing your design. It drives me crazy that after all these years, still web designers aren't routinely taught about accessible design as part of their training, and that... It's still true that an awful lot of ad agency websites are among the least usable websites out there and certainly not accessible. So I think we still have a long way to go there when it comes to designing for accessibility and just for the good usability that that can lead to. On the second day, we were greeted again to start the day by the most excellent master of ceremonies, Christopher Penn, who is the co-host of the Marketing Over Coffee podcast. And he had some interesting stats, including that 70% of stuff that gets shared online is what he called part of dark social, something that marketers can't track, stuff like Snapchat, where there's no digital record kept. 70%, that is pretty impressive. That's not what we would expect based on how much weight we put on what's said on social. 
There's also an awful lot of stuff that's on the internet that's behind what he called a velvet rope, or hidden or private. And uh, according to his research, only 30% of the stuff on Facebook is actually public now. Now, that said, I think, you know, definitions of public and private on Facebook can be a little fluid, and often what you think is private turns out to be kind of public when Facebook changes the way it does things. So personally, when I use Facebook, I just assume everything is public. There was talk of content shock, a Mark Schaefer concept from last year. Still just picking up steam. The amount of content showing up every minute of every day is just becoming enormous and incredibly difficult to cope with, which means that standing out on the internet is getting harder and harder. One of the speakers made the comment that a second is the new internet minute. According to some research by Shift Communications, where they looked at the volume of stories published as news stories by Google, or showing up in Google, has increased by 36% year over year in the last two years. Just incredible growth. So no wonder we have trouble keeping up with it all. We had an appropriately entertaining presentation from Michael Marino of Caesars Entertainment, who pointed out what I had already realized from what I've seen and heard of the people I know who've been going to Vegas, which is that Vegas and Caesars Entertainment is no longer even primarily about gambling. Yes, gambling's a big part of it, but other forms of entertainment are now the main thing that most people go to Vegas for. They may do a bit of gambling, but for most people, that's really not their focus. And Caesars Entertainment has realized that and bought quite heavily into other forms of entertainment. Caesars had one of the world's first loyalty programs to reward people for being frequent gamblers in the early days, frequent customers. But they have realized that in the digital era, they needed to change things up a little bit. And the goals of their digital marketing strategy were, first of all, to enable real-time marketing efforts so that while you're there in Vegas, they can push ideas out to you for things you might want to do for entertainment and coupons and discounts and stuff that will inspire you to go to one of their properties while you're there or many of their properties. Second thing is to reduce friction in the experience. So those of us who've been to Vegas know that it's often just an absolute nightmare checking into these hotels and resorts with huge long lineups. And so they're developing ways that people can do advanced check-in from their phones and go straight to their rooms. And the third goal was to engage members outside the casino and outside their visit to Vegas. Because the reality is most of us are not in Vegas every week, but they wanted to be able to stay top of mind for people during those months when they weren't in Vegas. So they've done some pretty clever things. First of all, by onboarding customers better, telling them once they've arrived, what are all these other offers and deals, they saw a pretty huge revenue bump. He also talked about his, gave a great example of his conversations with his lawyer wife who uh, was uh, as baffled as he was, really, about the fact that people spend millions of dollars a day gambling for fake currency, spending real money to get this fake currency. I mean, we've all seen it with uh, 
you know, when Farmville or some of these other games were all the rage and people would pay real currency to get things they could use in the virtual world. Well, the same thing has happened with gambling, which is a way that places like Caesars have got around the fact that gambling online itself is not legal. But there's nothing to prevent gambling that does not involve real money going on online. Caesars is able to reward people who play these online games. First of all, you keep them gambling and in a gambling frame of mind. But then they can give them rewards of discounts or special offers when they next come to Vegas. So it ties in very nicely with the customer's interest in gambling, but it is still something that is legal. Other things they've done to make the experiences simpler and easier and more pleasant for customers is using their app. You can basically get into the long lineup for their restaurant without having to actually be in line. So you can still be in your hotel room or wandering the streets or shopping and get yourself into the long lineup without having to stand there. I think my big takeaway was Caesar Entertainment okay. when he talked about the micro. Uh, macro moments, and I believe at times we do forget. We think about the whole journey and not look for those moment of truths. So the little simple things like if we know who you are, we know if you like gambling or not. How to personalize it to give you that specific offer for you, not just everybody. So I love what he said about removing friction and look for those micro moments and just blow it out. Melissa Duros from Discover, in her presentation, said that a major focus for their customer experience initiatives is to ensure that a customer never has to repeat information that the company already has about them. We all know how incredibly frustrating it is when, for instance, you enter your bank card onto your keypad of your phone, and then when you finally get through to an agent, the first thing they ask you is, "What's your bank card number?" So it's nice to see that companies are finally recognizing the ridiculousness of that and connecting their systems so that customers no longer have to do it. Because they don't care about an internal process that's clunky or whatever that we're frustrated with. It's all about during that touch point, they're okay with it. They don't have an, uh, any friction um, in making sure you capture their friction points. Hiram Barber from Schneider Electric talked about their move and interest in moving more into the Internet of Things and digital data management in that way, and noted that it is really important, first of all, when you're collecting customer data, to make sure you keep it accurate and current, to use identity management systems to actually protect personal information. And to think about what is the risk if this information inadvertently leaks out. He also talked about three key elements of effective personalization. First of all, strategy. Second of all, deciding who within the organization owns the responsibility for a particular activity. And thirdly, who's doing the work because it's not always the same person as the one who is responsible. Without thinking those things through, things will invariably fall through the cracks. There was some interesting data presented by a company called Applause, which designs apps. And uh, one of the things that I found really striking was they said that Starbucks is now one of the largest banks in the United States, if you can call it that, banks in quote, because so much money has been prepaid on their mobile apps. 
When it comes to getting and keeping traction with your mobile app, you need to keep rebuilding. You need to keep introducing new customer experience focused features. It is not a world that stands still at all. Customer expectations continue to rise and you must not disappoint them. Also, remember when you're designing apps, or really these days when you're designing just about anything, is that users aren't going to read the instructions, so it has to be so intuitive it doesn't need instructions or release notes. Before you release your apps into the wild, make sure you've done a lot of testing, both user testing and technical testing, because if you haven't and it's not very good, you've probably blown your chance of ever gaining traction with it. Martin Gerth from Travelocity talked about their strategy of a customer-first guarantee. And they found that by focusing on dramatic improvements in customer responsiveness and customer experience, that a formal loyalty program wasn't needed because great customer experience leads to genuine loyalty, not just people collecting points on a card. He presented some interesting stats from uh, last October 2015, at which point 57% of all consumers begin a customer service interaction online. And this is quite consistent with what we've seen elsewhere. Most people would prefer to be able to solve their problems themselves rather than have to call. A third of U.S. consumers use social media to ask a question that had to do with service, and half of those were expecting a same-day answer, and in fact, 14% expected an answer within an hour. So one thing that struck me, and I was a little bit surprised by this, was coming away from this, how much I'm going to prioritize resolving issues and taking away friction actually above and beyond delighting the customer. I think the thing that I have learned most about uh, from this conference is really uh, how much you have to start to shift your focus away from the bottom line and into what's going to make your customer the happiest because that will equate to getting to where you want to be. You know, we're very, uh, as most businesses are here, we're very numbers driven and um, you sometimes have to take a step back from that. Certainly that's important, but really learning our, who our customer base is, building for those customers is what I think I'm going to go back to and, and start talking about with my team. That's all for today. I will be back with you next week when we're back to a more normal format for the episodes. Have a wonderful week. Bye.